Mental illness affects more than half of the U.S. population, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. One in five U.S. adults are affected by mental health, or 51.5 million people in 2019. Zach Westerbeck is a mental health advocate and college success coach who is on a mission to educate college students and organizations to understand the complexities of depression and anxiety in today's modern society. He's also the author of the book, you're not alone. And to join me this week to discuss the importance of our mental health, and he says that our state of our mental health has never been more important than now. It's an important conversation we all can benefit from. So without further delay, I'm Kevin McShann, led to this conversation. If you're ready, I'll take a moment to welcome you to the program, and I'm excited to talk to you, talk to you all about mental health and all of the yes. good work that you do. Good to be with you this afternoon, and thank you so very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Kevin. So, Zach, they tell me that uh, you think uh, now is the best time that we need to be uh, concerned about our mental health. Obviously, the pandemic has put us all in sort of a uh, state of uh, needing to value that a little bit more. But I know that it's a big part of what you do. So I, I'm wondering if that is a direction we can start our conversation this afternoon. I think it's a beautiful direction we should take our conversation. Um, and I'm wondering, would you like me to share how I got into this line of work? Uh, what do you? Yeah, that, that's a good place to start. We can start there. So for me, this line of work was super unexpected. Um, I did not think that, number one, I would ever, I, I never even, like mental thought was an afterthought. Like mental health was an afterthought for me. I never really thought about my own mental health. I never worried about it. Um, and I certainly never thought that I would become a mental health advocate and author and, and coach in this space. And what ended up happening was in late 2015, I started to experience symptoms that I'd never felt before. And I'm a young man uh, just moving down to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina to start my first job out of college. And all of a sudden I'm experiencing these symptoms that I know that I don't like and that I want to get rid of. And so I devised a plan. 2016 was right around the corner and I figured, you know, let me just go ahead and flip my brain back. Back in those days, I thought my brain was like a light switch. 
something had been turned on and I just had to flip it back to the way that it used to be so that I could get my life back on track and, and quote unquote, get things back to normal. And so my plan was just to go to work, go to the gym and sit in the steam room and sweat out all the toxins in my body. Um, and so that's what I did for 31 days in January. And I did get results. The challenge is that it wasn't the results that I was looking for. And by the end of the month, not only had the symptoms uh, intensified and gotten worse, but a second set of symptoms had crept in. And so now within a few months, I'm experiencing severe anxiety and deep depression with no answers as to why this is happening. And so I go into full-blown panic mode, just trying to flip my brain back. Again, I'm kind of clinging to this narrative that I just need to flip my brain back to the way that it used to be. And so for the next couple of months after that, I'm trying all these quote unquote Zach's home remedies to try and flip my brain back and nothing's working. And at my darkest period, I was having thoughts of suicide from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed. And this was waking up and trying to brush my teeth, eat a little breakfast and get out the door to go to work. This was sitting in meetings um, at the company that I used to work for. This was hanging, ba hanging back out with my, with my roommates at home after a, a long day's work. And I was having thoughts of suicide. And so eventually I hit my rock bottom moment where I seriously considered taking my own life. And that's when I confided in my support system. I know we were talking a little bit about my wedding and being surrounded by, by the people that you love. Um, and for me, that was really the start of my journey to recovery and how I was inevitably able to start advocating for others. And my parents are, are the initially the people that I called and they didn't know what was going on with me, but they did encourage me to seek help. And in late 2016, I found a psychologist that knew what was going on with me. And I was uh, diagnosed with a chronic brain disorder, something that I'll live with for the rest of my life known as obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, where the core symptoms are severe anxiety, deep depression, and thoughts of suicide. And so over the course of the next couple of years, from 2016 up and through 2018, I went on my journey to recovery, which included talk therapy, lifestyle changes, and mindset shifts, and, and learning how to approach my brain and my thoughts a little bit differently. And through that journey, I've been able to get back to a place where I feel healthy enough to advocate for others, um, to first and foremost, let them know that they're not alone. That's number one. If you're experiencing anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, you're not alone. And number two, that recovery from, from these symptoms is possible. It's a medical condition just like anything else. And there are actions that we can take to improve our brains and, and literally heal ourselves. So, um, that's, yeah, that's my story. That's how I got involved into this line of work and how I ended up publishing the book. You're not alone. And now speaking to thousands of students across the country, sharing my story. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know doing the research for this, uh, conversation. I have to tell you, I was inspired by your own personal story and I want to, uh, commend you for all the strides you've made in your life's journey. So I want to say congratulations, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank so, you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Now tell me you, 
mention it briefly, but tell me all about the book, You're Not Alone, and the message that you were, you were hoping to convey through the book, bud. Yeah, so the book is the book was initially written to 18 to 24-year-olds. And the reason why the book was written to that age group um, was because the, the onset of the majority of brain disorders, uh, including anxiety and depression, stress, overwhelm, and then obviously actual, like the, the kind of the chronic diagnosis that I received, <clears throat> this all takes place about 75% of individuals that are going to experience these symptoms will experience them between the ages of 18 and 24. That's when they first start to experience these symptoms. And my, my, I'm, a prototype for that. Like I started to experience these symptoms in college, but I think I was self-medicating a lot. Um, back then I was partying a lot. I was indulging a lot in cannabis. And I think I was able to numb myself out without really realizing it. <clears throat> and then when I got into corporate America is when I really started to feel those uh, symptoms at a more severe level, because I was just, I wasn't self-medicating, right? I wasn't partying as much. I wasn't indulging in cannabis as much. And so that was kind of when I realized what was going on with my brain, but <clears throat> the entire book is focused on helping young adults. Although now, you know, I get people reaching out to me of all ages um, talking about the book uh, and how it's helped them, but it's really focused on helping people overcome symptoms of anxiety, depression, and thoughts of suicide. And so the first part of the book is more on my story, a little more in depth than what I've shared here. And it goes through some of the initial mindset shifts that people need to make in order to destigmatize and normalize what it means to have mental health or what I like to call brain health. And I use the term brain health throughout the book as a destigmatizing tool. We don't call our heart health soul health. We call it heart health because it's a tangible organ in the body and there are actions that we can take to improve its, its functionality. And this is the exact same thing with our brains. Our brains are a tangible organ in the body, and there are actions that we can take to improve its functionality and in a lot of ways heal our brains, um, <clears throat> especially from symptoms of anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide. So the first part of the book is all about normalizing those symptoms. The second part is all about teaching people how to identify the various symptoms that they're feeling. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of people that reach out to me that say, you know, I've felt fatigue, I've felt lack of motivation, I've felt uh, deep sadness, I've felt um, like isolating myself. And when I read your book, it's like an aha moment where I put together the pieces of wow, like, I think I've been depressed or be dealing with depression for years and just didn't really understand or realize what I was feeling. And this is the same thing with anxiety, right? Like I didn't realize that having racing thoughts and a pounding heart and a dry mouth and tingling down my arms and dizziness as symptoms of anxiety, I thought that this was just how everybody felt. Um, and so it's really turns on that light bulb moment. And so the book then dovetails into the step-by-step -step process to seeking professional assistance through uh, a few different means talk therapy being the first and what I would say the most important um, medication considerations, right? Thinking about is medication a, a good approach for you. And then the last part of the book talks about all the self-help strategies. So what are the things that we as human beings can do on a daily basis 
to improve our symptoms and heal our brains. And so that is the breakdown of the book. The whole goal is to help people feel less alone, shift their mindset around what it means to experience anxiety and depression, start looking at it as a medical condition, something that we shouldn't feel ashamed of, um, embarrassed by, and then the step-by-step process to getting back on that path to recovery. Yeah, fabulous. It sounds like an interesting book with with, filled with a lot of good lessons and advice. So first of all, I want to commend you for writing and publishing the book. I know uh, publishing books and that process isn't always the easiest. So uh, any author that can navigate that process, we celebrate, right? Yes, yes. Absolutely. And Zach, you know, I was looking forward to our conversation because I wanted to ask you about the lack of mental health resources that we currently have in our system today. You know, there are a lot lot of uh, mental health cases that get um, uh, shut off to the police because there are a lack of uh, mental health resources. And in some cases, the people handling uh, those types of cases don't have the necessary uh, training. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on how we make sure that we can increase the mental health resources and supports that are available. Yeah. So it's, that's a great question. And I think there's no one right answer. I'll start by saying that this is, this is my opinion based on the research that I've done and I'm, I'm one advocate. So I think it takes a collective group of individuals to tackle um, mental health challenges or brain health challenges in our society today across the full spectrum. Because when we think about brain health, it's, it's this continuum that we all sit on and experiencing stress, experiencing lack of sleep does alter your clarity, your cognition, your ability to regulate your mood. So that in, in and of itself is brain health as well as something maybe more severe like schizophrenia, bipolar, OCD. So we have this large brain health continuum and how we tackle that is a question that I think a lot of people are asking. So I think it's a great, a great question that you're asking. From my experience, I think it's a three-pronged approach um, with proactive, preventative, and then treatment measures. And what I mean by proactive is these conversations right here. So getting more information out into the public that destigmatizes and normalizes what it means to have brain health. So starting to get people to talk about at the very, very early stages of whatever it is that they're experiencing, talking about that with their support system, right? So that's that's the proactive approach where as a society, we completely shift the way that we think about brain health, right? It goes from this thing that is undesirable and negative and something that we should hide and keep to ourselves to something that we should be openly talking about and celebrating when people get the help that they need. Preventative is a lot of the early measures, right? That's like the self-help strategies. So at scale, teaching children simple self-help strategies, right? How do you regulate your mood? How do, you, how do you show up every single day and utilize healthy um, 
de-stressing tools like meditation, mindfulness, exercise, diet. So this is like the preventative side of things. And I touch on that in the book. And then from a treatment standpoint, and I think that this is the part that you're talking about too, is how do we make more resources available to more people? Um, because on the proactive side, you, you, you talked about first responders. I think every first responder should be trained in something like mental health first aid or something of that nature, a derivative of that, so that they know how to respond to mental health crises in an effective way that make that make sure that nobody gets hurt on any side. Um, and that inevitably the person who is struggling, um, let's say an individual is struggling with psychosis, they don't get put into the wrong institutions, right? They get put into the right places where they can get treatment and taken care of. And so that's the pro that's where the proactive and the treatment side meet, um, where we make sure that we have enough resources. And I'll tell you, I think more and more as brain health is being destigmatized, we are going to see an uptick in the amount of students going to school to become psychologists, become therapists, become psychiatrists. And um, I'm really, really bullish on that, that market and, and, and what the, the amount of growth that we're going to see in that area over the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we need the, the strength of numbers. Isn't that Zach? Absolutely. 100%. We, uh, so I just have one uh, follow-up for you in terms of uh, enticing people to go into the mental health treatment field. How do you think we can make those uh, careers more enticing uh, to young professionals? Well, I think it's happening now, and I see it at the collegiate level when I speak with students. It's, it is a passion career. And I always say this, there's three types of people in every room that I walk into, right? There's somebody that's dealing with a brain health challenge in that moment, stress, anxiety, depression, potentially thoughts of suicide. There's the individual that at some point in their lifetime is going to experience those emotions or those symptoms, and they're going to need to know how to get help. And then the third group is those of us that are going to know somebody that's struggling with stress, overwhelm, anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide. And what I've learned in my work in speaking to thousands of students across the country is that we, we've all either experienced these symptoms or we know somebody who's going through that or has gone through those symptoms. And therefore, we're drawn to the topic. Um, you know, there's so many students that come to me and they're like, my brother, my mom, my aunt, my grandmother experiences these symptoms. And I really resonated with your story. And because of everything that they've gone through, I want to go into this field. So I think storytelling, like Kevin, you, you tell your story. And I think that it's really powerful and it gets people, stories get people to take action. And so I think as we have more and more people out there sharing their stories, it's, it's just going to lead to more people moving into the field because it's a passion job. And the more that people are impacted by brain health, whether directly or indirectly, the more that they want to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. And Zach, tell me, how do you think uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis has sort of affected the mental health in industry in general and our own uh, mental health? I'm curious to get your perspective. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, it's first we have to start by 
level setting that first and foremost, above everything, our brains are hardwired for survival. Like that's the, the, the number one thing in our amygdala, which is the almond shaped part of our brain and the limbic system is responsible for survival. So it is constantly scanning our environment and it is looking for threats real or perceived. And then it's activating our fight, flight or freeze system. And why do I bring that up? Well, if survival is our number one, if our number, our brain's number one mission, right, to keep us alive, then it's reasonable to assume that our brains like comfort, comfort, our brains like predictability, our brains like consistency. This is why human beings are drawn towards schedules, right? Like we all like having a routine. And so the pandemic has inserted uncertainty into our lives at scale, right? So it's no longer just individuals one-off experiencing uncertainty here and there, maybe with their careers or with some sort of medical condition with their family at scale, all of us are experiencing the uncertainty that comes with uh, a pandemic and not knowing what new news is going to be brought tomorrow. What new variant is going to be, you know, talked about in the media, what new mandate is going to be released from the political sphere. And of course, people are worried about their jobs. They're worried about us sinking into a recession or depression. Um, and as a result of this uncertainty, anxiety is heightened. So that's why we've seen a massive uptick in anxiety. And then because of the isolation, we've seen an uptick in depression. So a chemical known as oxytocin is released when human beings are connecting with each other. It's a feel-good chemical for our brains. And especially at the height of the pandemic, when we were forced indoors um, for long periods of time, we were isolated from each other. We were scared and we were isolated. And isolation is the precursor to loneliness and loneliness has been directly linked and correlated with depression. And so I think we're seeing a perfect cocktail, if you will, with the pandemic creating uncertainty, isolation, people are being forced more to interact virtually. Uh, we're seeing people obviously using social media at, at a much higher rate. And there's a linear correlation between time spent on social media platforms and the likelihood that you experience anxiety or depression. Kids especially are being impacted by the pandemic. I mean, suicide rates amongst teenagers and um, young adults, college students is at an all time high. And I think it's because of the approach that we've taken to the pandemic uh, via the isolation and just the fear, constant fear mongering and uncertainty that is is strife right now in, in our society. Yeah, absolutely. And you had mentioned the fact that you work with college kids to sort of help them uh, manage your, their mental health. So I'm curious if you could tell me all about that good work that you're doing on the college level there, buddy. Yeah. So it's been nice because recently things have opened back up a little bit and they've been doing some in-person uh, programming, which has been great. So all fall, all spring of 2021, and I've been doing this for years, but this in 2021 in particular, the spring was completely virtual. So everything was over Zoom. But then this fall, we were back in person, which was which was really nice. And my program really focuses on three core areas. It's, it's all about brain health awareness and, and spreading that across campuses so that students can get the help that they need. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, tell me about the sense of empowerment you get by helping uh, college students sort of uh, get over this hurdle or, or challenge that they're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry, I put myself on mute there for a second. I was clearing my throat. Um, no problem. Um, the program is broken down into three core parts. The first is that destigmatizing, normalizing part. So this is where we debunk uh, common mental health myths and we start to reframe what it means to have brain health. The, the second part of the workshop is focused on uh, turning everybody into an advocate in the room or on the Zoom call. So this is where we teach everybody what the signs and symptoms of anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide are. And then lastly, we talk about how do we effectively communicate about brain health and encourage others to seek help. And the reason why I say that is you brought up the empowerment aspect. And the biggest thing that I've seen is that there are so many students right now that feel lost they feel alone, they feel scared, they feel uncertain, anxiety and depression is strife. I mean, I take, I take um, a survey after every workshop and two of the questions I ask are, have you experienced anxiety? Have you experienced depression? And anxiety, I want to say is at about 75 or 85% and depression is at about, is at about 50%. So about 50% of the students that sit in my workshop, um, report experiencing depression about 75% of them report experiencing anxiety. And what the workshop does is it normalizes for them these emotions, and then it gives them a direction and an opportunity to take the next step to start to improve. And I can tell you, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. In the, just the last workshop that I did, I had a young man wait after and he waited a while because there were some other people coming up and I could tell that he wanted to have a longer conversation. So I wanted to make sure I gave, gave everybody their appropriate time without just kind of rushing them along. And we ended up, him and I ended up speaking for about 30 minutes after the program. And he was in tears because he was coming to the realization that he'd been struggling with depression for years and that he'd kind of been limping along, but things had definitely gotten worse and they were consistently getting worse. And it was becoming increasingly more difficult for him to cope with these symptoms. And so we've put together a plan and right now we're actively working to get him on his path to recovery. But for the very first time in a, in a few years, he's acknowledging the challenges that he's struggling with. And that is always the first step right? If we deny or ignore, we'll never improve. And so for him, these, these are the, those are the types of conversations that give me life and, and keep me going. Because I'll tell you, Kevin, getting flying all across the country for months on end can be quite tiring. Um, but it's worth it when you can see the, the impact that you're having on the, on the ground level. Yeah. You know, Zach, I always say life is a grand adventure, isn't it? It is. It definitely is. And I'm, I'm curious to ask you about uh, a myth that you want to uh, dispel, your top three myths about mental health that you think need uh, clarification or that people may not fully understand. I'm wondering for you, what's uh, those uh, trigger points? I'm curious. Well, so there's three that I'll talk about that I think are important, especially for any listeners that maybe they're experiencing thoughts of suicide right now, or they know somebody that's experiencing thoughts of suicide. The first myth that I want to debunk is that uh, 
we should never bring up or talk about thoughts of suicide with a friend or a loved one out of fear of planting that seed in their head, right? This, this idea that if we bring it up, then they'll be reminded of their thoughts of suicide or, and I remember this in my own personal life, individuals knew that I was experiencing close to me, people close to me knew that I was experiencing anxiety and depression, but they thought that as long as they didn't bring it up, I would forget about these symptoms and therefore I wouldn't feel them. And that's just not true. An individual that's experiencing anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, they're experiencing those symptoms on their own. They didn't need anybody to push them to get there. Now, people might have had it. There's many factors that contribute to symptoms of anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, which I talk about in the book. So somebody could have been a reason why you're now experiencing those symptoms, but a friend or a loved one bringing those topics up is not planting a seed in your head. If you if you're experiencing those symptoms, you've gotten there on your own. And actually we just want a safe space to talk about it. So that's number one. Another myth that I want to dispel is uh, this idea that if somebody comes to us and tells us that we have to promise not to tell anybody about them struggling with anxiety, depression, or thoughts of suicide, that we have to keep that promise, right? We all want to be good friends. We all want to support each other. We all want to prove to each other that we can be trusted. But especially when it comes to severe anxiety, severe depression, and then, of course, any thoughts of suicide, this isn't a promise that I can keep. And, and nor should you or your listeners, right? Um, we want to collaborate with that individual and work with them to get them on their path to recovery uh, versus keeping that promise. So being upfront with them, hey, I really appreciate you sharing what you shared with me. And although I can understand why you might want to keep this a secret, I promise that I'm not just going to go around telling everybody, but I can't promise you that I'm not going to uh, just keep this a secret and move on and not work with you to find the help that you need. And then the, the last one being, um, if somebody approaches you and says that they're experiencing thoughts of suicide, that you need to get really, really serious and tell them that they need to get help immediately or you're calling 911. And the issue with this, and I've had a few people ask me this and why I wanted to debunk it, is if somebody's in a state of crisis or somebody's in that vulnerable state where they're experiencing thoughts of suicide, just like I was, we don't want to match their energy with aggressive energy. We want to remain calm. We want to come across as neutral, comforting, supportive. You know, I once heard that a smile goes a long way. So maybe smiling at them and nodding with your head up and down, like, I hear you. I'm here to support you. And we don't want to call 911 right off the bat. Like that is not the first step. That feels more like a threat. And this might turn the individual off from opening up to you again. Instead, we want to work with them to see if we can get them to collaborate with us to get them on their path to recovery. And we should only involve the authorities uh, when it appears that that individual is in crisis and they are getting ready to take action. Um, and even then, we want to call and make it clear that this is a mental health crisis that we're dealing with so that they respond appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for um, sharing those helpful uh, tips and advice there, most appreciated. And Zach, I, I, I want to ask you about uh, a little bit about your personal life and how you uh, now to find your own personal and uh, professional happiness. Mm, I like that. Um, 
Well, professionally, I'm very fulfilled. Uh, I think that there's always room for growth. I came from corporate America. Um, I worked for a large technology company, great company in terms of the people, the people are great inside of the company. Um, the culture's good. I think that the culture could, could have some improvements, but it's, you know, it's just like anything else. It's always evolving. But I think the biggest thing for me was wanting to get into a career path that lit me up and, and fulfilled me much like it seems like the path that you're on Kevin with the work that you do and it, the technology I just wasn't interested in like the actual products that we sold they were good and I felt comfortable selling them um, but I didn't it didn't light me up I wasn't researching the technology I wasn't spending time thinking about it outside of work and for me, being in, in the brain health field is every single day is exciting. Every single day is interesting to me. There's always something new to either read or listen to. Um, and so I'm very stimulated and I feel very fulfilled helping others. So professionally, I'm, I'm right where I need to be. Personally, I just, I just got married. So I now have a wife and I absolutely adore her. And I'm really excited to start building a family with her out here in Southern California where we now live. And so I think that there's always room for improvement in my personal life. And I'm really just working on every single day as I build my business, taking the time to take care of my brain. And I don't think we talk about that enough as entrepreneurs. And so it's definitely a lesson that I learned because I transitioned right out of corporate straight into entrepreneurship. And I didn't realize how much stress I was living under as an entrepreneur. And once I became cognizant of that, just working every single day to make sure I'm doing the right things uh, to take care of my brain. I meditate three times a day. I exercise. I eat healthy food. I minimize my alcohol intake. Um, I spend more time with friends than I ever have before. I'm putting way more emphasis on that. And then of course, spending quality time with my wife. So personally, I feel like I'm moving in the right direction, Kevin, but it, you know, it's, it's like you said, life is a grand adventure and I'm deaf. I definitely don't have all the answers and still trying to, to dial in what works best for me and my brain. Well, Zach, I have to tell you, you've given me a reason to fly out to LA, but you know, I, I uh, live in, in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, buddy. So you're yep. uh, being uh, broadcast internationally today. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? That's really cool. It's really cool. So uh, tell me, I'm also curious to ask you about anyone that's struggling with mental health. What is uh, your, uh, your message to them about ways to cope through what they're uh, going through? Well, the first thing I would tell one of your listeners or anyone that's struggling with anxiety, depression, or thoughts of suicide is you have to understand. And I know that it's difficult in, in the moment, but you are not weak, weird, or different for experiencing these symptoms. And I remember when I felt them, I felt like I was the only one on the face of the planet experiencing them. I felt like I was weak for not being able to just solve it and get over it myself and just figure it out on my own. And so that's actually the second mentality. Like once you've started to realize, okay, Zach experiences anxiety and depression. Like it's a medical condition. Why can't I? It's, 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 this isn't a moral deficiency in who I am as a human being. The next step is realizing that 
help is the most important thing that you could get at the start of your journey to recovery. And when you think about help, it's, it's kind of a two pronged approach. I break it into professional support and then personal support. Professional support is going out and finding the right psychologist or therapist for you. And in, in, immediately starting up talk therapy, right? I think, and I was going to, I was thinking in my head, should I dive into cognitive behavioral therapy and ERP? But the most important thing for people to understand is that cognitive behavioral therapy is the umbrella talk therapy that can treat anxiety, depression, um, thoughts of suicide, OCD, schizophrenia. And then there are different talk therapies underneath that umbrella that niche down. So exposure and response prevention is specific to OCD. So anybody who thinks they're experiencing OCD like symptoms should um, find a therapist that specializes in ERP, but we want to start with professional support. So asking for help in the professional community. And then personally, we want to find those few family members, those few friends, you know, it could be a mix, whatever that looks like that you can open up to and talk about what you're experiencing, what you're going through in that moment and asking for their support. And even at times, if you need to, um, pulling resources. So that's the last thing, pulling resources that you can, so that you can learn more about your path to recovery. You're not alone is an option, but there are plenty of other, um, brain health books out there that are great. In fact, I have a list of them in, at the back of my books. So people should check that out because there are so many books out there to help you get on the right path and then starting to implement those lifestyle changes that I've talked to you about. So meditating, um, getting ample amount of sleep between eight to 10 hours of sleep every single day, meditating for 10 to 15 minutes every single day, using an app like Headspace or Calm, exercising four to five times a week. Doesn't need to be a lot, but 20, 30 minutes of movement is great for your body and your brain. Um, and then building out that support system around you to go on that journey with you so that you don't feel like you're alone. Yeah, absolutely. And Zach, I know that your team had shared with you and I shared with you that I was born with uh, what's called spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. It sits in limits that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And I'm also curious to ask you about your own de definition as to what uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion means for you, for uh, folk with disabilities to be included in every aspect of societal life? I'm curious to get your answer. Well, it's, I, it's a great question. And I think it's exactly the work that you're doing. Um, and it's people coming together and having these types of conversations. And my big philosophy is I think that especially growing up in this country, I've seen this concept of freedom, right? And I think that we're, we're unpacked. Well, you're in Canada. I'm in, I'm in the U S so we're obviously there's some different, there's some cultural differences in terms of how our countries approach, um, society as a whole, but in America, we we're big on the concept of freedom. And I think more and more we're seeing that being embraced in our country where all people, all individuals, every background, um, every disability, every race, every religion is more and more being able to tap into those, those privileges around freedom, freedom, the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want the ability to just like you, Kevin, go out and build a business and advocate 
And so for me, um, that inclusion and diversity looks like everybody being more free, the ability for everyone to show up and be safe and be able to contribute to society and just eliminate as many barriers as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing that. And my final question for you, Zach, is I'm curious to know how you want your personal or professional legacy to be defined there, buddy. I just want people to feel heard, man. That's always been my goal. Feel heard, feel loved. Um, my company was founded on, on love, hope, compassion, and information. So I want to spread information about brain health. And along that path, I want people to understand that they're loved, that there is hope for recovery, and then that they're going to be showered in compassion, right? Which is the desire to take action and help other people. So that's the legacy I want to leave. Absolutely. And finally, tell me, if people want to get connected with your buddy, what's the best way they can do that? So they can, they can go to zachwesterbeck.com um, and you can kind of click through the website there uh, to learn more about my coaching services, to learn more about my speaking and the various programs that I have there. You can also find the book on uh, my website as well. And you can find me on Instagram at Zach underscore Westerbeck and Westerbeck is spelled with all E's. Fantastic. Well, Zach, I really enjoyed ending my uh, podcasting week by having a conversation with you. And I want to, again, commend you for all the good work that you've done to maintain and um, uphold your own me mental health. And I want to thank you for uh, spreading the good word of, of inclusion for everyone as it comes to the mental health space. And I want to thank you uh, for being here today. It's most appreciated. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it.